How many of you know who C.S. Lewis is? Right? What's he most famous for writing? Chronicles of Narnia, right? Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, also, he wrote nonfiction stuff. Mere Christianity may be the most popular on that side. But I was reading this week about uh, uh, reading one of his other works. It's called The Great Divorce. It's this really fascinating book where C.S. Lewis gets on a bus with ghosts and rides to heaven. Now, his point in the book is that he is writing about why people choose to either go all in with Jesus and to follow him or to not. And so what happens in the book is C.S. Lewis and his fellow ghost get on this bus and they ride to heaven. And when they arrive at this outpost before they get to heaven, that people have to make a decision about whether or not they're going to heaven or they're going to refuse. Now, he's not saying that's the way salvation works. It's a parable, right? Right. Are are you here? Okay. It's just a story, right? And so he he tells this story and and they're going forward and and they, they get to heaven. And when you get to the outskirts of heaven, the outpost of heaven, someone will come out and greet you. It's a bright, shining figure, but it's not an angel. It's somebody that you know. And someone will come out to meet you in this story called The Great Divorce, and they will try to convince you to continue on your way and go to heaven and meet the Lord and try to help you through that process. And when uh, this story goes on, it starts to center on this one particular person. They do different vignettes throughout, but there's one in particular that is striking, and it's the story of this woman named Pam. And when Pam gets to heaven on the bus, the ghost bus, She gets out, and walking out to meet her is her younger brother, Reginald. And when Reginald gets to Pam, she gets upset. She didn't want Reginald. You see, she had had a son pass away named Michael, and she tells Reginald, I don't want you, I want to see Michael. And her brother says, you're not ready for that yet. He says, until you get to the place where you want to see the Lord more than you want to see Michael, you're not ready. And she says, fine, 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 just let me see God. Then he goes, no, no, that's not the attitude you need to have. You see, you find out as you read the book that that Pam had, at her son's death, had focused completely on him. She never changed his room. She abandoned relationship with close friends. She neglected other children, her husband, her parents, and others. Michael had become this vision of something she longed for. Her brother Reginald says to her, you were only Michael's mother because you were first God's creation. And until you come to love him first and completely and totally, you're not ready to see him. As the story continues on, there comes a place where Pam finally announces, I don't like that and I don't want that. No one comes between me and my son, not even God. Lewis kind of makes the point in the book and his kind of theology out of it is, That God doesn't choose to not let us into heaven. We choose not to let ourselves in because we don't choose 
him. He basically says that anybody that has this view of God where they say to him, God, I know what you're asking me to do. I know what you're requiring me to do. I know what the scripture says, but I'm going to refuse that if you will say to the Lord, not thy will be done, then God will look at us and say, fine, you have it your way. Now, there are a lot of people that get real uncomfortable with the story of Pam and Michael. Because we love our kids. And the thought of someone stepping between us and them could be very difficult. But the point is, what the brother says, is that we are first and foremost God's creation. And our devotion must go first and completely to him. Uh, the pastor, Kyle Eidelman, calls this a top button issue. Sometimes when I get up in the morning, I start to get dressed. And a lot of times I'm getting dressed when everybody else in the house is asleep. And so I do that in the dark. And so I put the shirt on and I start the button and I start to get. And about halfway down the buttoning, I realize I have messed up the first button. Anybody ever been there? Okay. And you don't realize it till you get down there and it's. To use a good southern word, your shirt's all catawonky, right? It's all off-center. It's not exactly right. And if you don't get the top button right, you don't get the rest of it right. Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength is a top button issue. If you don't get that right, you don't get anything else right. And what we see in Scripture time and time and time again is that the Lord says that He demands from us all that we are in order to follow Him. God requires our complete and total devotion. He demands that we go all in. So last week we started this series called All In and our casket friend here was here. We talked about this group of one-way missionaries that went all in for the Lord and that when they were called to foreign lands, what they would do is that they would pack everything they owned into a casket They would load that casket up and they would sail across the seas. And as they sailed across the seas, they were saying goodbye to family, friends, never to see them again, never to be back on their homeland, never to be a part of their family in that way again. Oftentimes going to very dangerous places and they would put it all in a casket symbolizing that this is it. I'm going to the place of my death, whether in a few weeks or years. I'm all in for the Lord. We talked about that in Scripture over and over again. It asks us to go all in, to be completely and totally devoted to Him. And if you've got your Bibles today, I want you to turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 22. If you're new to the Bible, Genesis is easy to find because it's first, right? So Genesis chapter 22, it's going to take us a minute to get there, but here's what I want us to look at today. Because last week we looked at this story of Jonathan and his armor bearer, where Jonathan is going to, he, he says and looks over and the Philistines are there and God has told him to attack the Philistines. And he says, maybe God will show up if we act. And so he gets his armor bearer and the two of them take on the Philistine garrison and destroy the people with God's help. We talked about the fact that God has not called us. To safety. In fact, the, the kind of the phrase we used was that Jesus did not die to make us safe. Jesus died to make us dangerous. God didn't come to this earth. He didn't send Jesus Christ to live a perfect life. We're closing in towards Easter. He didn't 
have His Son die on the cross and rise again from the dead to make us safe. Died to make us dangerous. To make us people that are willing to step out and to do amazing things for the Lord as He provides. And so this week we're going to talk about another guy that stepped out on faith. And here's the thing that I want you to see this week. We're going to talk about a guy that didn't get asked by the Lord to go all in once or twice but at least three times that I see in Scripture. And each time, the difficulty rises. We're going to talk about Abraham today, but I want to kind of start, before we get to Genesis chapter 22, I want to start back at Genesis chapter 12, where this all begins, his story. And back then, he's known as just Abram. He's not Abraham. And in the midst of a life that was comfortable and good, he's got his family around him. He and his wife are living comfortably. They don't have any kids yet, but they've got uncles and nephews and parents. And everyone is living there. They would have lived on the family plot. They would have farmed the family farm. Would have been, from what we can tell, they were, they were doing well. They had all these things moving for them. They had started to settle down in life, look forward towards kids and all of that kind of stuff. And in Genesis chapter 12, God says, it's time for you to go all in. Genesis chapter 12, he says to him, we're going to put this up on the screen, I think. There it is. So the Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now, some of you grew up in church and you've heard this so much, like, yeah, that's right. Uh, from the Ur of the Chaldees, Abram is called and he goes and he does what God says. But again, I want us to think for just a moment, and we're just going to be here for a second, about the monumental ask that God is putting on the life of Abram right here. He just told him to leave everything he has ever known and everyone he has ever been a part of and says just Go. Just leave. Now, I want you to imagine, okay? Some of you don't live around your parents. That's not, but you've done this kind of thing. You've said goodbye and all that. But I want you to imagine for a, a moment this moment of God calling and you going to your parents, to your grandparents, to the family, at, at the, around the Thanksgiving table, at Christmas, you're getting ready to open gifts and say, listen, the Lord has called us and we are leaving in the morning and we don't know where we're going and we won't be in touch for the rest of our lives. Merry Christmas. I mean, now it's not a big deal. We're going to move across country. We got Skype. We got all that stuff. But to Abram, this is it. He's cutting all ties. It's over. We are not going to be in contact anymore. No family help. No any kind of contact. We're leaving and we don't even know where we're going. We live in a society that does not even comprehend what it would be like to make a faith move like this. Because we want to have it all figured out. We've got to have a business plan and a home plan and where we're going to live and what we're going to eat and how we're going to take care of this. I mean, there are some of you that will not make a day trip to the mall without a detailed plan of what's going on in your mind. Amen? Anybody want to point that out in their spouse, right? What are we doing? I don't know. We're just going to have to know. I need to know what we're doing. I need to know where we're going. Right? We need to settle this before we get going anywhere. How many of you, let me just, buy, just, it's spring break, so some of us, you know, obviously if you're here, you're not on major vacation somewhere. But how many of you go on vacation, you are detailed plan. We've got days mapped out. Yeah, some of you aren't raising your hand. That you, you're out there. How many of you are like, let's just go with the flow, whatever happens. You're raising your hand because you think that's what I want to see, but that's not, 
their lives. You know what I'm talking about. Like, right, I'm at York, so I just got back from a little trip, right? Y'all planned out Disney World to a T, right? Okay. Had it all planned out, mapped out. We're going to do this, this day, this, this day, this day. Listen, I'm married to one of those people. It's spring break. What do you know? What's spring break supposed to be for? Spring break. The kids are like, we're out of school. It's Xbox time. We don't have to worry about homework. Susan's like, on Monday we're doing this, and on Tuesday and on Wednesday, we've got it planned out for the whole week. Kids are going to be busier this week than they are in school, right? Abram doesn't get anything together, no pros and cons list. It tells us in Scripture he doesn't go through all of the financial implications. He doesn't think about what it will mean to take his family out of this place and move to a new community. He doesn't research local places. He doesn't get on the Internet and find out what the best neighborhoods are. He just goes. In the midst of that, God tells him, Abram, when you do this, I just want you to know that I'm going to make you into this great nation and you're going to have tons of kids and there are going to be more kids than you can count stars. There are going to be more kids than sand on the sea. It's going to be amazing. And we get to Genesis chapter 15 and all that seems well and good, but here's the problem. If you're going to have billions of kids, you must first have one. In Genesis chapter 15, Abram is at a crossroads because he decided he didn't trust the Lord's timing. And in the midst between Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, Abram decides that God didn't do what he said he was going to do or he must have misunderstood him because Sarah's not getting pregnant and Sarah's getting older. And so he, Sarah, take things into their own hands and bring in a servant girl and Abram has a child with the servant girl. And in Genesis chapter 15, he's beginning to wonder if he's lost God's blessing. This is what God says to him at the beginning of 15. It says, after these events, this is after Lot's rescued and miraculous, all this kind of stuff. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision and said, don't be afraid, Abram. And then he gives him this kind of cryptic thing. I am your shield and your reward will be very great. Now, here's what he's saying to Abram here. In the midst of not knowing, in the midst of not seeing the timing work out exactly like you thought, in the midst of not being sure that everything is happening like you want it to happen, trust me. And he tells him that that phrase, I am your shield and your reward. The idea is the thing that he wanted Abram to understand is that God is our reward. God is the answer to what are we getting and following God. We get God. And that relationship. And he says, I know that you've left everything that you know. I know that you have trusted. And after this, Abram says, but listen, God, listen, I understand what you're saying there. Okay, I got you. But I don't have a kid except for this child. And my heir is going to, I don't have a kid. The heir is going to be the servant girl. And God says, no, it's not. I'm going to produce in you a nation. Now, now you you grew up in church, you know the story, right? What happens? What happens with Abram and Sarah? They have a child, right? How old were they? Old, all right? Now, I, I'm sensitive to calling people old, but when you have a baby in your 90s, guess what? You're old, all right? Anybody here want to have a child when you're 90? I didn't have any takers in the first service, all right? I'm rethinking this whole 35 thing. What was that about, right? It's not, it's not for youngsters. And so you have this um, promise fulfilled. And here's what I think is interesting. Twice already, 
God has asked Abram, are you all in with me? Are you completely devoted? First of all, will you leave all your past and everything you know to follow me? Secondly, will you... In the present, live in the unknown. The promise is there, but it's not fulfilled yet. Will you trust me in the midst of this? Will you go all in in the present, living daily as you've been called to live because of something that is coming down the road? And then when we think it's over, when Abraham thinks it's done, my name's been changed to Abraham now because I'm going to be the father of many. I've got the son. God has worked in me what he promised to work in me. It's amazing. I think in Abraham's mind, he thinks it's done. I'm over. I'm retired. God has finished with me. And what he doesn't realize is the first two tests were just the pretest and the midterm and the final exam is on the way. Look at Genesis chapter 22. Starting in verse 1. It says this. After these things, God tested. Now that's an important word at the very beginning of the story for us. Because people get caught up in what we're going to talk about. Some of you, many of you know what we're about to talk about. They get caught up in, well, did God really want Abraham to do that? Did God really ask Abraham to do that? Here's what I would say about all of that. Is this. No. God who sees past, present, and future knows that he doesn't want Abraham to do this. God doesn't encourage this. This is a test. This is not the real thing. You know the difference, right? How many of you remember that little testing sound from the emergency broadcasting system? You remember that, right? They'd come on the TV, you'd be watching a show, and right in the most inopportune time, that thing would flash up there, and it would hurt you riding the radio, your favorite song is on, and all of a sudden that comes on, and you, what in the world is going on? Then those words would always come on, this is a test of the emergency broadcasting system. If it was real, there would be instructions following it, right? This is not the real thing. This is a test. So God tested Abraham and says to him, Abraham, and I love this, because three times in this passage, Abraham's going to answer the exact same way. But I think each one is a different mood. And the first time Abraham, you know, God has blessed him. He has got his child. He has given him victory. He has given him wealth. He has blessed him beyond what he can think. He is in the glory days of his life. He is in the golden age. Retirement is there. He can see the end. He is so thankful to God. And he says, here I am, God. What do you want? I'm ready. It's excited about life. Here I am, he answered. He goes on to say this. Take your son, your only son Isaac. God didn't recognize the one that came from the servant girl. Whom you love. Here's what I find interesting about that little phrase. This is the first time in the Bible the word love is used. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. I want to leave that up there for a minute. Because, see, I I have lots of theological training. I've read this story many, many times. Many of you have looked at it. You've taught it. You've studied it. You've been in Sunday school with it. You've had these discussions. But every time I read that phrase, I am hit anew by the severity of it and the hurt of it. Take your son, your only son, the one that you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there on one of the mountains I will tell you about. You know what? Even in this 
passage, by the way, we have a clue that this is a test continuing that started with get up and go from the land you know and go to the land I'll show you. Because he doesn't even tell him which mountain. There's a mountain over there. I'll show you when you get there. You just get up and go. And I have four kids that I adore. I would do absolutely anything for them. In fact, most of my life is centered around taking care of them, taking care of Susan. How can I protect them? How can I provide for them? What, you know, if, if danger were ever to come, I'm the first one out there. It's just so counterintuitive to have something like this said. And so you, you think to yourself, why would God test in such a way? And I can't pretend to know the mind of God. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. They are higher and better and deeper than anything we can imagine. But I do know it must be a pretty significant lesson that's going to be taught if God is testing in this way. In fact, I saw a, um, a tweet this morning from Rick Warren that said that in school we are taught the information and then tested on it. In God's economy, He tests us to teach us the lesson. And so the question we have to ask is, if this is such a major thing, what is the lesson that God is teaching Abraham and as a result teaching us? It's not rocket science to, finish, to figure out the lesson, right? He's finding out if the son that God gave him is more important than God himself. Is the gift more important than the giver? What follows in the next verse, and there are, there are lots of amazing, mind-blowing statements in Scripture. But what follows in the next verse is one of the most mind-blowing to me. It says, Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took his two young men and his son Isaac. Immediately, he obeyed. Split wood for burnt offerings, set out to go to the place God had told him about. I mean, this is immediate obedience and it is unbelievable to me that he is just that committed to the Lord. I, I, I want to be perfectly honest with you. I don't know that I would pass this test. He split wood for a burnt offering, set out to go to the place God had told him about. It goes on to say this. On the third day, it's a three-day journey. Don't you think at some point in that journey you would think, maybe we ought to turn back? I mean, let's rethink this. I mean, this isn't like immediate obedience that's go out immediately happens. It's a three-day journey the entire time going over and over what's about to happen. And he said to the young man, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I, this is amazing to me, will go over there to worship. What's he think he's about to do? What does he think he's about to do? Kill his son, right? What does he call it? It's a strange word to use there, right? But in the mind of Abraham, this is so, so just so amazing. In the mind of Abraham, what he's thinking is any obedience to God is worship. It may not look like any worship service I've ever been to, but if God calls me to do it and I obey, it is worship. And so to Abraham, this is an act of worship. It's just as significant what he says after that. Then we'll come back to you. Now, 
We'll talk about that in a minute, all right? Because that's an amazing thing he says. Next part, it says this. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, laid it on his son Isaac, and his hand, he took the, well, we may have skipped a part there. All right, right before that, I put these in, so I may have skipped a part. Right before that, right? Isaac looks at Abraham, and he says to him, Dad, and I love this, because Abraham responds with, here I am. Same thing he said. Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, my dad, my father, and he replies to him, here I am. Now, remember, he said that earlier to God. I think the attitude is a little different here, don't you? He knows what's about to come. He knows what's about to happen. He says, yeah, I'm here. I'm here, son. What do you need? And then Isaac asked him the question that is on everybody's mind at this moment. Dad, I, I see we've got the wood. I, I see the fire. But we're missing something here. And Abraham, showing his faith in the midst of that, says, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together. Then we get to the final part of the exam. Abraham ties his son. He builds the altar. He arranges the wood. He bounds his son Isaac, places him on the altar on the top of the wood. And Abraham reached out, took the knife to slaughter his son. Now, again, I want you just to, even though it's a difficult image, I want you to think about this for a minute. Abraham has his son tied to the wood, ready to be given. And you have this picture of him with the knife above his head. There are very few pictures that you could think of that would show someone more completely, totally, all into following God than that. I don't recommend that this afternoon. But do you see it? His devotion to the Lord is more than anything else. Now, there are some of you right now that are almost queasy with the thought of this process and even celebrating this or talking about it because you say it's just so wrong. Again, it's a test. God was never going to let it happen. He goes on to say this. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he replies, here I am. Same phrase. This time, I think it's a little different. At the first, it was, God, what do you need? I'm ready. We're, we're in this together. Everything's great. In the middle, it's the, I know what you're asking, son. I know. God will provide it. God will take care of it. Here it is. I really don't want to, but it's about time. I'm going to show my devotion to the Lord. And the angel calls him and he says, here I am. What do you need? And the angel says, don't touch him. I know now that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. Can I be honest with you? This is a difficult story. Amen. It's not easy in the least. It's not one of those that you just kind of gloss over. There's a heaviness to it. I mean, even in the room, there's kind of a heavy feeling because this is a serious, difficult story. And so, again, if this is a difficult story and if God is showing Abraham something, we have to ask the question, what is it? And again, it is this. Anything in your life that becomes more important to you than the Lord has become an idol. And any idols we have have to be laid down on the altar in front of him to show him we are all in with you, regardless of what that means. This passage of scripture 
I mean, I remember growing up in youth groups and, and writing things down and putting it on the altar. We'd, we'd talk about this at youth camp and this story. And what's your Isaac? What are you writing down? We'd write something down. We'd go put that up there. And, you know, when I was growing up, my Isaacs were um, important at the moment, but looking back on them are not as significant today as I thought. Right? I mean, stuff that we really cared about when we were younger, we look back now and go, why was I so upset about giving that up? Susan and I were, um, we've been married for a few years, and uh, I was pastoring in Ripley, and this passage came alive to us in a moment. And it's, what's interesting is, we were back in, in West Tennessee, right around Christmas, and drove from Dyersburg to Ripley uh, to go to, when I went to preach at Ripley the last week of, of last year. And both of us, at a certain spot in the road, said, I remember this spot. You see, I've told many of you, you've heard me tell a little bit of our story, that we were told by doctors we couldn't have kids. And in fact, um, Eli was uh, through some medical help and intervention that we had children. And we thought that was the only way we would ever have children. And Susan and I both were built and felt like God had called us to be parents. There there are some that aren't, and there are some that that, that really want to be, and it's difficult. And for Susan and I, we we thought that that we were supposed to be parents of multiple kids, and and we were just having a hard time. We, We tried the medical stuff, and we're fortunate we were given Eli. We tried medical stuff again and again. And it is expensive. No luck. We remember driving specifically on this road. And there was a spot there that for some reason, I don't know if it was a Bible studies we were doing or readings we were doing. We had both read this story. And we don't even remember which one turned to the other and said this. But we had both been thinking it. That said that another child was the Isaac we had to lay on the altar. That we had to give up hopes that we would ever have anymore. And that Eli was enough for us. And he was. And we didn't. We weren't neglecting him or not loving him. But we just had to come to that place where we were okay with that. And I remember through tears and through talking. And just in that moment, that clarity of that is what has to happen in our lives. Because at that moment, it had become more important to us than our relationship to each other. And our relationships individually to the Lord. Here's the truth. The things that are loveliest and most attractive in our own lives have the biggest chance of becoming idols. And sometimes our greatest gifts will become God's greatest test for us. So here's the question that we're going to end with today. What is that thing that you're holding so precious that it's preventing you from going all in with the Lord? What is that relationship? Is there a person or are there people that you hold so closely, so tightly, that if something were to happen to them, you would really think about your relationship to following the Lord? Is there someone in your life that your happiness or sadness, your mood, your day depends way too much on? Great theologian from a long time ago used to say that any time in our lives we place other things in front of the Lord, they become disordered loves and they wreck our lives. What is it that you have placed before the Lord and he's to go on the altar? Now, here's what I love about this story. You remember reading a few moments ago where 
Abraham says, hey, we're going to go over here, we're going to worship, and then we're going to come back. What's interesting about that is he knew he was going to sacrifice his son, and yet it says that he says, we're coming back. When you get to the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews says that Abraham said that because he believed that even if he struck down his son, God would raise him from the dead because he believed in God that much. I'm not guaranteeing you this. I'm not guaranteeing that every time you lay something on the altar, a relationship, a materialistic thing, a job, a career, a promotion, that you lay it on the altar and say, God, it's there. If you want it, take it. I'm not guaranteeing every time he's going to give it back. But many times in you giving it up, he gives it back to you in a way you never imagined. Susan and I made that commitment on a fall day, night, driving home from Dyersburg to Ripley. About three weeks later, four weeks later, Susan comes jumping in on the bed in the morning. She didn't tell me she had had any kind of symptoms or anything. She just kind of felt weird. And we discovered shortly after that conversation that we were going to have Luke. No medical intervention, complete miracle of God. Three and a half years later, we discovered no medical intervention, complete miracle of God. We're going to have Maddie. A couple of years later, no medical intervention. We're like, God, we're good. We understand that blessed cup overflows. We got that. We got it. But I truly believe that part of the reason God has blessed us and part of the gifting that we've had is because in that moment, we were willing to lay it on the altar. I'll be honest with you, that's not always the case with me, and I struggle with it all the time. There are things in my life I know I have to say, here you go. And it's not easy, but it's best. In this series, we're talking about going all in for the Lord, and there's no way you can go all in if you're holding something back. And there are a lot of you here today that got something you're holding back. The question is, today, will you lay it on the altar? And say, Lord, take it at yours. Let's pray together.